Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for January 2020, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Alan Paul. He is the co-author, along with Andy Allidort, of the book Texas Flood, the inside story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. This is the first definitive biography of guitar legend Stevie Ray Vaughan, just a few years after he almost died from a severe addiction to cocaine and alcohol. A clean and sober Stevie Ray Vaughan was riding high. His last album was the most critically lauded and commercially successful in his career. He had fulfilled a longtime dream by collaborating with his first and greatest musical hero, his brother Jimmy. His tumultuous marriage was over. He was in a new and healthy romantic relationship. Vaughn seemed poised for a new limitless chapter of his life and career. Instead, it all came to a shocking end on August 27, 1990, when he was killed in a helicopter crash following a dynamic performance with Eric Clapton. He was just 35 years old. Texas Flood provides the unadulterated truth about Stevie Ray Vaughan from those who knew him best. His brother Jimmy, his double trouble bandmates Tommy Shannon, Chris Layton, and Reese Winans, and many other close friends, family members, girlfriends, and fellow musicians. I began my interview with Alan Paul by asking him to give us a little biography of Stevie Ray Vaughan and what made him so special. Well, Stevie Ray Vaughan was a Texas guitar player who came out of Austin, Texas with just the greatest bang in the world. Came, it seemed like he had fallen out of the sky. And for readers who are younger, if you don't know Stevie, you probably don't understand what the world was like in 1984 when Texas Flood's debut record came out. And it was really dry out there for this type of music. Nobody was looking for guitar-based music. Nobody was looking for blues-based music. We were in the era of synthesizers and pop stuff by you know, Boy George and Culture Club and Depeche Mode and Cure. And uh, the, the the more guitar-oriented music was punk. You know, you had The Clash and, and, and a whole world of music with exciting things happening on guitar, but it was a completely different type of music. And Stevie came out, and he was so strong and so powerful that um, it, it made people want it who had no idea they wanted it. it. It just blew the world open. And and that began with his first appearance that most people heard was as a guest artist on David Bowie's Let's Dance album. And, you know, when that came out, you know, and credit David Bowie for having the genius to say, you know, this is what I need in my music. Because again, nobody was looking for that. It was, it was a wild idea that David Bowie had. And he had the strong vision to see it would work, and it, it did work. Um, and that paved the way for everything else that, that happened afterwards with Stevie. It's so true, Alan. I, I had forgotten about this. I thought that Stevie Ray Vaughan had worked with David Bowie late in, in Stevie Ray's career, but it was at the very beginning when nobody knew who he was. And again, it's just another testament to the genius of David Bowie, who, who recognized talent, whether it was someone famous or someone brand, brand new. And again... Uh, you kind of, if you look at it, gee, this blues rock guitarist on, on this particular David Bowie track seems like, well, maybe oil and water, but it's just perfect. You can't imagine Let's Dance without those searing guitar lines. What was Stevie Ray's big break that really launched his career and got him signed to a major label? 
Right. Well, it really was that appearance with David Bowie. And before that, in the way that David Bowie uh, discovered him, was that they got plucked sort of out of nowhere to play at the Montreux Jazz Festival when they were just playing clubs in Texas because Jerry Wexler, the great uh, New York producer for Atlantic Records, happened to hear them down there. And he called the head of Montreux Jazz Festival and said, I've just discovered the greatest band. Book them. I don't have a video. I don't have a recording. You just got to trust me. So they went over and they played, uh, and it was quite an amazing thing. But the show itself was a bit of a flop. Uh, They were playing on an acoustic night. They were, of course, very loud and rocked up. Uh, blues and the applause was tepid. There was a scattering of booze, and they walked off stage feeling terrible. You know, they just thought, "Oh my God, we came all the way to Switzerland for this." <laughs> and uh, then someone from the festival came and said, "David Bowie is here and would like to see you. Could we send him back?" Well, of course. So David Bowie came back, and he happened to be in the audience, and he said, "You guys are incredible. You're the greatest guitarist I've seen in many, many years." Mm-hmm would you like to play on my next record with me? And Stevie said, yeah, sure. And I don't think anybody at that moment really thought it was going to happen. I mean, it's one one of those things. But uh, the next night they played in the musician's bar at the hotel, and Jackson Brown was there. His band, uh, bass player, stumbled into the bar, saw them, was blown away. He ran out to the hotel phone and started calling everyone in the band, including Jackson Brown, and said, come to the basement bar, don't ask why, just come. And they all came, and they jammed with him until 7 in the morning. We have photos in the book of Jackson Brown wearing Steve Ravon's hat and playing his guitar. And at the end of the night, 7 in the morning, Jackson said, I have a free I have a studio in Los Angeles. You're welcome to use it for free anytime you want. <laughs> so in the ensuing months, Thanksgiving weekend in 1982, they went up there and they used it. They recorded uh, what they thought was a demo, it ended up becoming Texas Flood. And while they were in L.A. Uh, doing those recordings, David Bowie tracked them down and called and invited Stevie to come. So in this very few months period, they went from playing this, you know, playing in bars in Texas to getting onto the stage at the Montreux Jazz Festival, thinking their performance there was a flop. <laughs> and a few months later, you know, he's recording with David Bowie. They've recorded an album at Jackson Brown Studio that becomes their debut album, Texas Flood. So everything really turned around on that trip to Switzerland. Oh, it sure did. And how did Epic Records come come to sign Stevie Ray Vaughan? Was it through was someone there at that Montreux Festival, or is, or once he had uh, no? How did that happen? They they recorded these the, what they again what they thought was a demo at Jackson Brown Studio and started shopping it. And there were several labels interested, but the person who jumped up. And, and, and really wanted to sign it was John Hammond, who was working at uh, Columbia Records, of which Epic uh, is a subsidiary, was a subsidiary label. John Hammond was the legendary uh, talent scout. Stevie was his last signing. Among his other signings were Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Billy Holiday, <laughs> uh, Charlie Christian, Robert Johnson. So uh, he was a legendary talent scout, and and just the mere fact that he had signed Stevie became also a a very signature uh, part of his career. So at the same time that he was working on that, uh, on the debut album that had been signed, and they were cleaning up those recordings, he had recorded with Bowie and was supposed to go out on tour with with David, um, but things got a little hinky and that ended up falling apart. (laughs) So um, because things ended badly between Stevie and uh, David Bowie, some of Stevie's fans over the years have come to Bowie as a bit of a villain 
Um, but I think that's completely misguided. And in fact, he was the genius who recognized the, uh, Stevie's ability and brought him to the attention of the larger public. So Stevie Ray Vaughan and his band Double Trouble released the debut album, Texas Flood, in 83. The follow-up, Couldn't Stand the Weather, in 84, Soul to Soul, in 1985. And Stevie and the band are playing and touring relentlessly. And unfortunately, like so many musicians, he he fell into a lot of bad habits, didn't he? It, it almost cost him his life at that time. Is that right? Yes. Stevie had bad habits from before any of that. He did. But they got worse and worse and worse as it went on. He had more money. He had people coming around and bringing him drugs, as happens uh, once you're a celebrity and people want to hang out with you. And his problems became worse and worse and worse. And they really came to a head in fall of 1986 when they were on tour in Europe. And he played some very bad shows because for years he had had these almost debilitating drug problems in debilitating in all areas of his life except music. The music continued to be wonderful. And then all of a sudden, his show started to suffer. And that really came to a head on that tour in Europe. And then he collapsed uh, in Germany, was rushed to a hospital, and he almost died. And in fact, people ask me all the time, well, what made Stevie decide to go sober, get sober? And the truth is, nothing made him decide. He, it was decided for him because he was going to die. It was as simple as that. He was up against the wall where his choices were basically die or change your way of living. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah, so he did change his way of living, but he shocked even the people closest to him, including his brother Jimmy, by really, really embracing sobriety and embracing this new way of life. He did not do the thing that many musicians do, which is I'm going to get myself clean so I can, you know, get back on the road and get back to my habits. That's not what he did. He embraced it with a passion and an intensity. And I would say an intensity that matched the intensity with which he pursued his music. And in doing so, he became a giant inspiration um, initially for the people closest to him, including Bonnie Rake, who was a good friend. Uh, Bonnie told us in the book she was directly inspired to get sober because of Stevie, because of his example, because her excuse was, I can't do it, I won't be able to play. And when she saw Stevie, and he was playing not only as well as he ever did, but possibly better, and ultimately definitely better, with a more uh, purity, more intensely focused, more, almost, I would say, perfection, um, that, as she said, Bonnie said, that was my last excuse. So he inspired people like her by his bandmates, his brother, directly to get sober. And then ultimately, many, many, many people, starting with his fans, starting with other musicians. And I think it's one of the most inspiring parts of Stevie's story. Um, to this day, almost 30 years since he passed away, uh, he continues to be an icon of sobriety, and he's he studied in AA meetings. And I have friends and young relatives who are toddlers when Stevie dies, um, who are in the program and who are inspired by him. So um, I think that's you know one of the great stories of Stevie Ray Vaughan transcends music, and it's about the perseverance of the human spirit, the fight, and the, the you know the. the uh, the fight to maintain who you are and to be a better person and a bigger person. Um, and he embodied all of that. 
And I can testify to uh, how incredible he was uh, once he got sober. It was the one and only time I saw him play live, and it was right here in Ann Arbor at Hill Auditorium. I looked it up today on December 11th of 1986, so it was shortly after he went into recovery and went back out on the road, and he played a show here at Hill Auditorium. And, Alan, it was one of those nights that I still remember so well and remember thinking, well, I didn't get to see Jimi Hendrix, but I've gotten to see Stevie Ray Vaughan, and the talent is just so mind-boggling. He's making the most difficult things technically look like drinking a glass of water, and it's so fluid, and it's so soulful, and it's so inventive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. and you in the audience, of course, would never have known this, and it wasn't certainly publicized really at the time. But gee, December of '86 was Stevie just about a month into being back out on the road sober, mm. and in fact, he was feeling very shaky. If you would have had the opportunity to speak to him after the show, he probably would have run up to you and said, "Martin, did that sound okay?" And I, I feel shaky. I don't feel right. Oh. Um, but he was playing with that purity. And over the course of that year, he got over that insecurity and that questioning, and he knew how good it was. And and, and then he really started to take it to another level. Mm. And then it was what? Less than four years later, he dies at the age of 35. And again, this is one of, one of those times that I'll never forget, waking up and watching the the noon news. For, I think it was home from work that, that morning and watching the local news. And they reported about the helicopter crash. What, what exactly happened to him on uh, August 27th of 1990? Uh, August 25th and 26th of 1990, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble opened up for Eric Clapton at the Alpine Valley in Wisconsin, which is really uh, in suburban Chicago, you could say. Um, The first show came and went with no uh, hassles. They took a helicopter to and from their hotel in Chicago to the venue. The second night, however, they stuck around to have a jam at the end of the night. Uh, Jimmy Bond had flown in uh, just for that show. He came out and jammed. Buddy Guy came up from Chicago to jam. And Robert Cray, who had opened the show, came out. So it was uh, Robert, Jimmy... Buddy, Stevie, and Eric Clapton. They played Sweet Home Chicago. At the end of the night, they went off. Eric Clapton had helicopters that were supposed to fly him and his people back to Chicago and then return for Steve Gray and his people. Um, But what happened was at the last minute, somebody from Clapton's crew decided not to go. And so there was an open seat. And so Stevie was anxious to get back to his hotel in Chicago and call his girlfriend. So he said to everyone else, do you mind if I take that seat? So he ran out to the helicopter. He climbed on. The other people in his helicopter were all members of Clapton's crew. The fog was very, very heavy. And uh, thousands of people who were at the show that night described driving home in fog so thick they were worried about rear-end collisions and such and driving off the road because it was pea soup thick. Um, But the airspace was not closed. The helicopters took off. The other ones flew off to Chicago with no incidents. Uh, Stevie's, unfortunately, flew up. There was about 150-foot hill. had to fly up and over and that it would be clear sailing. And the pilot flew about 100 feet up and just flew into the hill, uh, immediately killing everybody on board. The fog was so thick that nobody heard a thing. It enveloped the sound, um, even though it was just behind the venue. And he wasn't discovered until early in the morning.
Mm-hmm. How tragic. How awful. Let's close out with something positive, Alan. What, what do you feel is Stevie Ray Vaughan's legacy? Does, does he still have an influence in, in the world of music these days? Yeah, there's a whole generation of guitar players uh, like Eric Krasnow, John Mayer, Marcus King, who were too young to see Stevie. And for him, he is the guiding light. He is sort of like Jimi Hendrix was to an older generation. He's the ultimate guitar player. And his legacy stands, uh, burns loud and clear through them. Um, but I think his legacy as a person is even greater. And in the way he embraced sobriety and coming to a new way of living and living sort of of a higher or as a higher order person, almost, I would say. Um, And so I think that as tragic and sad as Evie's story is, and certainly the way he died at the height of his power and as he was turning the corner to a new life is is everything. It's all kind of tragic. Um, But the way that he changed his life, the music he made, the way the music inspired people, the way his life inspired people is anything but tragic. It's inspiring. Um, and that's an important part of the story. And I'm sure that's what Stevie would want everyone to be focused on now. Thanks for joining us for Martin Bandike Undercovers for January 2020. Our interview was with Alan Paul, co-author of Texas Flood, the inside story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.